the book of Job. We've still got one more Sunday. There's still one more text after this one. But I really think in a lot of ways, this text that we're going to look at this morning is, is the culmination. It's the, it's the high point. It's the climax of the story of Job. And what we'll look at next, next week kind of is the, the restoration and what, what goes forward from there. Throughout the book, right, we've, we've talked about suffering. We've seen suffering. Job has suffered immensely. He doesn't know why, right? He doesn't understand it. Um, he, he longs for his day in court where he gets to finally speak with God. His friends claim to know why he's suffering and tell him, just repent. You know, it's obviously your sin, but they're wrong. Elihu comes along and in many ways kind of moves the story forward, right? He anticipates the Lord's response for us in a lot of ways. Even a lot of what the Lord says echoes Elihu's words. You may have even recognized that last week. But throughout the whole book, we find ourselves wanting, wondering, where is wisdom? <laughs> right? You can even go back to Job 28 in his search for wisdom. Where is wisdom? What is wisdom in this book? What is wisdom in what everybody's saying? What is God's perspective? Would be another way to say that. We, we got the first part of that last week. We're going to get the culmination, the second part of that this week. And so as we read Job 40 and 41 this morning, um, see this as God's answer to Job. This may not be the answer that he was looking for or expecting, but this is the answer that he gets. This is the answer that God decides to give him. And so as, as, we, as we read this, and go ahead and stand. Uh, we're going to read Job 40. Um, but as, as you hear this, I want you to consider, why is this? Why are these the words that God has chosen to give to Job? Like, why? Why is this God's answer to him, but then also for us too? Why is this God's answer for us? So we're going to read, uh, throughout the sermon, we'll, we'll read from 46 to um, 42, verse 6. Uh, but to start out, we're just going to read 46 to 14. You'll see that printed in your bulletin. So let me read that. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these verses that you've given us. We trust that they're not only for Job, but they're for us as well. And so we ask by your spirit that you would give our hearts faith, that you would help us to not um, be distracted. Father, help me to speak clearly. And would you speak through me? Uh, Father, most of all through this, would you point us to your son, Jesus? And would you humble us under your might and under your knowledge? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please be seated. I still remember that big season of my life about 10 years ago when for probably the, the deepest season of my life where I was brought face to face with the big why question. 
right? Why God did this happen? About 10 years ago, a good friend of ours died. Suddenly, out of nowhere, tragically, just totally unexpectedly, 23. And before that point in life, I'd been, right, confronted with the big why question through pain, through death, through, through sorrow, through confusion, through not knowing why something's happening the way it is, either in my life or in the world. But as I look back, that season when my friend died took me deeper into that question. The, the, the why was in front of my face in a way that I couldn't look around it. I couldn't look past it. I couldn't ignore it. It was, it was there for months. Right? Wondering, why, God, did you take him? Like, well, why did he die? Why, why was it him and not someone else? Why, why did he even die at this point in life? What, what are you doing, God? I, I don't understand. I, I think that you're just, but this doesn't seem very just. I think you're good, but this doesn't seem very good. I think you're in control, but why this? I, I don't get it. I don't see how it fits together. There was a BBC survey in 2004 that surveyed different or people's views on God, on suffering, on religion, and two of the statements that they asked people to agree or disagree with I think are intriguing. One of them is, I find it hard to believe in God when there is so much suffering in the world. Right? If there's so much suffering, how can there be a God? Second statement, God could prevent suffering if he wanted to. Right? Can he? What does suffering have to do with God? How does suffering both personally but also right as we think about culture global across all time how does that affect how we think about time certainly the statements that i just read are statements that have come across your mind at different times or as you've engaged with neighbors and family and friends right these are the things that we ask that we wonder in the midst of darkness sometimes it's it's a philosophical curiosity which isn't a light matter Right? That's a serious thing. How does evil and suffering and, and God, how, how, does, how do we put that together? Do those go together? How does that work? Other times it's deep, it's personal, it's brought about by something that you are personally wading through. Right? It's brought about by darkness that you are currently in that makes you face that question. Other times it's something cultural or something global. I mean, probably any, any week that I would ask that question, I could point to things in the news, but right, we can just think about the last week or two weeks and think about Afghanistan and the Taliban. We can think about Haiti and the earthquake. We can think about all sorts of things that are going on that, that are suffering, that are, are dark, that, that's sin, that's, that's difficulty. And so I want to ask you to do something very difficult this morning. I want to ask you right now, to, to just go to that place, right? What, what is that moment? What are those events? What is that season in your life when, for whatever reason, whether it's personal or something cultural or global, whatever it was, go to that place where God brought you face-to-face with why? Like, I, I don't understand. Like, what, what was that darkness that you were walking through, maybe that you're currently walking through? And I, I don't ask that question lightly because... I can look around the room and I can think of a deep and immense pain just as I look out on your, your faces. I can think about my own life. This is a big question, but I want you to go there because I think that's where God would have us go as we hear his answer.
And so as we come to Job, again, this is the culmination of the book, and it's the culmination both of the story, like of the book, but it's also the culmination of this in Job's life, like Job the man, Job the person, Job the, the one who actually walked through these things in, in time and space. But Job finally gets his answer here. And so today we want to do two things, and you'll see this in the outline. First thing we want to do is really just understand what is God's answer to Job. We want to go through it, and we're going to try to go through it as briefly and as quickly as I can. But what is God saying? Like, well, why does he talk about Leviathan and Behemoth, for instance? But what, what is God saying? We want to understand it. But then in the second half of the sermon, we're going to turn to Job's response, which is 42, 1 to 6. And we're going to see that Job accepts God's, God's answer. He accepts it. And I think as we see how Job responds, that actually helps us know how to respond to God's answer as well. So we want to understand, and then we want to move towards accepting it. And as we go through this, again, this is God's answer to Job. I don't think it's the answer that he thought he was going to get. <laughs> right? Throughout the whole book, when he said, I just want my day in court with God where I can bring my case before him and we can dialogue, this isn't what he thought it was going to be like, but this is very much the answer that he needs, and I think it's also the answer that we need as we walk through darkness and suffering as well. And so first, if you just look back at the verses that we read to begin, the, the, the opening verses, verses 6 to 9, God really lays out what is at stake in all of this. And what, what is the theme of this second speech? Because God's already given him one speech. Job responded, now this is speech number two. What is the theme? What's at stake in this second speech? Well, you'll notice that much of what God says here at the beginning is the same wording that he said in the first speech, right? Dress for action like a man, right? Get ready, Job. This isn't going to be an easy thing. Gather all you have and pay attention. Get ready. And he says, I will question you. You make it known to me. As Pastor Jim pointed out, God says, Job, I'm going to keep asking the questions. This isn't your time to ask the questions. This is time for me to ask you and you to answer me. Now, in the first speech, God started with, who is this who darkens counsel with knowledge, without understanding? And, and much of what God talked about was, was how things work. It was the knowledge of, of weather and all this stuff and knowledge of ostriches and animals and all these things that Job has no clue about, but God knows. But if you look at verse 8, God sets a different target here. Verse 8, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? God is telling Job, part of what's at stake here is my justice. Because part of what you're getting at, Job, is that I'm not just, that I'm not right, and that you are. He's saying, do you really want to go there? So this speech is about God's justice. But secondly, verse 9, it's about God's power. Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Are you powerful? Are you mighty? Do you have divine strength, Job? So God sets the stage and says, we're talking about my justice. We're talking about my power. That's what this is about. Now, if we think about the entire context of the book, it's, it's God's justice, it's God's strength in the context of suffering. Right? That's, what, that's where Job is at. That's why Job is asking questions and making statements. It's, it's, it's suffering. And we can relate to that, I think. Again, just going back to what I was saying earlier, if, if God's powerful, why did this happen? If God's in control and has all strength, then why this? Why did they do this? Why is there evil and suffering to begin with? 
Or if God's good and God is just, then why did he allow this thing to happen in my life? If God is just, then how can you explain this thing out there that's going on? God's power, God's justice. So God sets the stage, but then in verse 10 to 14, he issues a challenge, essentially calling Job to be God if he's going to act like it. He's challenging him. He's calling his bluff about that. And so if you look, verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, clothe yourself with glory and splendor. God's saying, go ahead, Job, put on your divine royal robes, right? If if you're going to act like you have godly divine strength, then, then show me. Like, put, put on those robes, take your place on the throne, and do that. Verses 11 to 13, God begins to talk about justice, right? Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Tread down the wicked and the proud. Whose job is that? Who does that? That's God's job. So God, God is actually looking at Job saying, do, do you, are you saying that you want this? Like, are you saying that you should be in control, that you should be administering cosmic justice instead of me? If that's what you're saying, let, you know, show me what you have. Like, prove it. <laughs> Obviously, Job doesn't have that. He goes on in verse 14 and says, Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So he's saying, Job, if, if you are God, if you have that power, if you have the royal robes, if you can administer that justice, then I'll acknowledge to you that you have power enough to save you. But until then... Let's not go there. Now, I want to pause. This isn't one of those moments where maybe in, in your life at times you've done something like this where you just kind of throw your hands up and say, I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. I just, just can you give me a little sympathy and compassion? You know, if you were trying to do what I was doing, you would see that it's difficult. That's not what God is doing. God's not throwing his hands up and just saying, I'm doing the best I can with the suffering thing, Job. Just, just give me a break. No, he's actually calling his bluff, saying, if you think you have this, then go for it. But really, the implication is, I know you don't, and you know you don't. It's, it, this is meant to humble Job, right? This should humble us as we hear it as well. And notice again that, that what God, the, God, the challenge that God is giving relates to power, relates to justice, just like he started with. Well, then God's speech gets really interesting. <laughs> this is show and tell time. God says, I've got exhibit A, behemoth. I've got exhibit B, Leviathan. Job, I just want you to sit here and I'm going to walk these by you and I want you to, to see what you think about this. So exhibit A, behemoth. I'm going to read verses 15 to 24. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened." He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Exhibit B, behemoth, a beast that Job can't do anything about. Now, before we get in too much to behemoth and Leviathan, let me just say this, that as as you hear about behemoth and Leviathan, one of the questions that we should probably have is, 
what animal is God talking about here? Like, who exactly, what animal is he, does God have in mind when he says this? Now, we, we honestly just don't have time to get into this. There are actually a, a couple of different views on that. I'm happy to talk with you afterwards about what I think, but so, some see it as, as real, some see it as mythical, some see them as symbolic. Okay, so we, we can go there, but for, for us right now, uh, again, I don't want you to spend too much time thinking about what exact animal is this, because I think the point is clear. And, and so I want us to pay attention. What is the, the, the point of, of why God has show and tell? Why is he doing this? So if we come to, back to behemoth, you see right out from the, from the beginning, he says, which I made as I made you. And then he, as he describes them, you have this sense that Job and any man can do nothing about this beast, right? This beast is unfrightened. Yet, if we approached him, we would surely be frightened. But to God, he is nothing. He is simply one of God's creatures, one of God's works. He closes it by saying, can someone take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? The implication is, Job, you can't take him on, but he's mine. Okay, this becomes more clear with Exhibit B, Leviathan. Verses 1 to 6, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide, up among, divide him up among the merchants? God is saying, is, is Leviathan a pet to you? Can you do with him whatever you please? Are you so strong against Leviathan that he would beg and plead for mercy and that you could capture him and just present him to your girls as if he was a little puppy? No. Verses 7 to 9. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. So not only can you take him as a pet, but God goes on and says, can you win a battle against him, right? Can you outstrengthen him and attack him to, to, to have the victory over him? No. He, he actually dares Job, go ahead and try it. <laughs> he says, if you try it, you will remember that day. You're never gonna even go there again. Like it's unthinkable to consider that. Verses 10 to 11 are the central point, I think, of God's comments about Leviathan. But we're going to pause. We're going to come back to that in a second. We're going to skip it. I'm going to read verses 12 to 34, which is lengthy. But in this final section about Leviathan, God catalogs, giving a description of what Leviathan is like. Again, don't, don't get too occupied on what animal is this. What, what I actually encourage you to do, if you want, is to close your eyes and just picture this. Not only picture it, but actually imagine if you were Job hearing this, what would you be feeling as you hear this description of Leviathan? God goes on, verse 12, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. 
Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrows cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Exhibit B, a fearsome, fearless, terrifying beast that we would not dare go near. He has no fear. He's king over all other creatures. This is who God brings before Job. So look back now. And verses 10 to 11 and, and ask, what is God's point? What, what, is, what is he aiming at with Job and with us? Well, you'll notice in the middle of verse 10 that the way God is speaking shifts. Because instead of talking about Leviathan, he starts to talk about himself. Verse 10, no, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Right, that's, that's the implication both with Behemoth and Leviathan. You hear these descriptions and you are a fool if you go to rouse them. Right? You are a fool if you go to attack them thinking that you have more power than them. Right? No one dares to stir him up. But verse t- the second half of verse 10, Who then is he who can stand before me? So God's saying, Job, if you can't get past my guard dogs, who are nothing to me and are but pets to me, why are you coming at me like this? If you don't have the power to go after them, what gives you the boldness to come at me like this? Because to me, they are nothing. Verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In one sense, I think God is saying to Job, Job, do you think that I owe you something? Do I owe you something, Job? No, I don't. I am God, you are the creature. And everything is mine. So, so what that means when he says that at the end of verse 11, every, uh, whatever's under the whole heaven is mine. He means, Job, you are mine. Job, everything that has transpired in your life is mine. All that has taken place is under me. Behemoth, Leviathan, guess what, Job? They are mine. You have no hope. You have no power against them. But to me, I can do with them whatever I want. They're nothing to me. Everything belongs to Almighty God. So that's God's second speech. Perhaps you're wondering, why is that God's second speech? Why does he go to behemoth and leviathan? 
Why is this God's answer to Job? Again, Job's response is very illustrative for us. Job here in chapter 42 answers really in the same direction as what he's already responded after the first speech, namely humility. But this response goes further. Again, it's a culminating response to go along with God's culminating speech. And Job's first response is in verses 1 and 2, and it's to rest in God's sovereign power and justice. Again, remember, God set the stage at the beginning of this saying, this speech is about my sovereign power and justice. Job's response matches that. Let me read verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job speaks of God's power. Job speaks of God's sovereign plan. He says God is powerful. God is able. It's as if he's answering the beginning and saying, no, God, I don't have an arm like you. I don't have a a voice that I can thunder like yours. All power is yours. And he adds, God, yours is the plan. Yours is the purpose. It will prevail, not mine. Your plan cannot be stopped. And as you hear verse 2, it sounds a lot like what we read in the Proverbs. A whole lot like it. But why is it significant for Job to be saying these things right now? Again, Job is is just a man. (laughs) like you and me. But why is it significant for this man at this time in his life to make that declaration? Well, Job has lost absolutely everything, right? Go back to chapters one and chapter two. Job lost everything that he owned, all of his sheep, all of his cattle, his servants. He lost his 10 children. So again, like think of Verse 2 was said by a man who just not long before that lost his 10 children. This is said by a man whose wife told him to just curse God and die. These words are said by a man whose friends came to comfort him and they only added to the affliction. So it's, it's Job after all of that saying, God, yours is the power, yours is the sovereign plan. He's acknowledging all of that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the loss. He's saying, God, I know that you weren't on vacation when my 10 children died. I know that you weren't just absent when everything was taken away from me. God, I know that you weren't in a losing battle with Satan, and Satan just got the upper hand for a minute when my affliction fell on me. That wasn't it. No, God, you're you're in control. You're powerful. And so for Job, this is a statement of trust. It's a statement of acknowledgement, but it's also just a statement of, God, I trust you. I trust that you have the power. I trust that you have the plan. Job says he's, he's done with asking questions. He's done with making demands. He doesn't need the answer about his suffering because he has his God. Right? God's answer for Job wasn't to explain the suffering. It wasn't to, to answer his intellectual issue and to solve the riddle. God's answer was Job I'm just. Job, I'm powerful. Job, you have me. And here Job says, I don't need the answer anymore because I have you. Instead of continuing to seek after the why and the why and the why, 
Job is resting in the who. Doug O'Donnell, commentator, says it this way, Job's intellectual problem remains unsolved, but also unimportant. That's not his concern right now because he has God. Job trusts God atop the garbage dump. Job trusts God in the midst of the darkness and the suffering and the not knowing. Well, what about you? What about us? What about our context? What about ways that we face suffering, darkness, evil, trials? Right? What, what answer has God given to us in the midst of our garbage dumps? Well, again, I think Job's response is helpful for us. We see that we need this sovereignly mighty God more than an answer that we think we're chasing after. We need the who more than an answer to the why. We need to rest. We need to trust our God who's powerful. I think again about the whole of God's response in this second speech. Power and justice belong to him. He owns them. He is sovereign in them. How do we know that? Well, in the speech, we know that because these ferocious, untamable beasts of Leviathan and Behemoth, they can't move an inch past what God says. They are on God's tight leash and they do God's will. They can't do anything apart from God allowing it. In suffering, we wonder if God's in control, right? We don't don't know if, if the chaos will win. We don't know if the darkness will just stay and never end. But we see here that God is in control, that God has prescribed limits. We think back to the beginning of this book, something that that we know, something that Job actually didn't know at the beginning of the story. Satan came to God and he had to get God's permission. Satan couldn't do anything to Job without God saying, yes, you're allowed to do that. You may even remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2, God was the one who suggested Job to Satan. Satan himself is on God's leash. Satan is just a creature. He is one of God's creatures. He can't do anything without God's permission. He is governed by God. He is under God's control, and ultimately, he's already defeated. Right? Think back to what Pastor Jim read from Colossians, the very end of that passage in Colossians 2, said that Jesus on the cross, when he took on our sin, he put Satan and all demonic forces to open shame, triumphing over them. They are triumphed over. They are done through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so in the darkness, in the suffering, is this God who we are seeing here, who we are hearing, is he enough for you? amidst the difficulties of life? That's not an easy question. I don't ask it tritely. But is this God enough when you don't know the answer, when you don't have power, when you're not sure, when you don't know how it's going to turn out or why something's happening? Is the who enough? Well, we see God's care, God's knowledge, God's awareness of evil and suffering ultimately on display in our Savior Jesus, right? Job says here, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job acknowledges God's plan is going to happen. It's on a track and it ain't getting off course. 
Well, a couple thousand years after this, God's plan was seen in a little bit more clearer light. Right? Years after this, God came and put on flesh. He said, I'm going to actually dawn suffering. I'm going to take suffering on myself. I'm going to take death on myself. I'm going to take sin on myself. I'm going to take Satan on myself. So what is God's unstoppable plan? It's Jesus. It's, it's God himself in the God-man, Jesus our Savior, actually taking these enemies on. That is a God we can trust, right? <laughs> that is a God that we can rest in, one who's sovereign in power, one who sovereignly in his power brings about his sovereign plan centered upon his son Jesus. And in all of that, if, there, if there's ever a dark moment, and, and a, a moment when we can't see and understand why, it's got to be the cross of Jesus. Right? Of all the suffering, of all the evil in this world, that's the, the pinnacle of it all where we say, why? Like, why would Jesus, why would our God come and take on flesh and suffer like that? Why? Because in his power, he's rescuing. In his power, he's saving. In his power, he's defeating. This is our God's sovereign power. Rest in it. Well, verse 3, Job shifts his response, or he adds to his response, and he actually responds to God's first speech. The beginning of verse 3, he says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's something God said in the opening of the first speech. So he's quoting God, and he's responding, and he says, Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. He's responded to God's power. Now he's going to respond to God's knowledge. And here he says, God, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't understand. I, I spoke as if I understood. I spoke as if I could see and, and as if I wanted to see the architect's plan so I could check off on it for you. He said, I didn't understand. But he now sees the vastness of God's knowledge, the vastness of God's wisdom. And he rests, he trusts in God here. And again, does this not point us to our Savior Jesus as well? Right, God who at this point in history, and even before this, knew what it would take to actually undo all the suffering. God knew what it would take to bring justice about for all the evil in the world. God knew what it would take to rescue his people out of a path of darkness. He knew the answer. God knew that Satan would be crushed by the offspring of Eve. That was God's plan, and God knew it here, even before this. God knew that his son would one day return and administer absolute cosmic justice, where his people will dwell with peace and no more suffering, where every single enemy will be made a footstool to Jesus. Like God knew that. God knew what it would take. He knew what his plan was. Job here says, I, didn't, I don't know, but I trust you who, do, who does know. Right? There's some things in life, even outside of suffering and stuff, where we just say, I don't understand how this thing works, but somebody else does, and I trust that person, and I'm okay with that. Right? Like, I don't know how a plane works. I don't know if a plane that I get on is going to be okay, but I trust everybody else that does it, and so I'm just going to get on that plane and not ask a thousand questions. 
Job says something similar here. He says, but, but it's a lot deeper, a lot weightier. He says, I don't know how the suffering works out. I don't know what your plan is, God. I don't know what you're doing and why you allowed this to happen in my life. I don't know, but you know. And for me, that's enough right now. God knows. Is God enough for you? Finally, we see Job's final response in verses 4 to 6. Again, he quotes God, where God had said, Hear and I will speak, I will question you, you make it known to me. And then Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. All right, if we think about Job throughout the book, Job knows God. Right? Job is not totally ignorant of who God is. Right? In the very beginning of the book, we meet Job as a righteous and blameless man who fears God and turns away from evil. So Job knows God, but through this, God gives a greater, clearer, more awesome revelation of himself to Job. And Job sees it. Job sees God through this. Now, I think it's interesting. You may note, too, that Job says, but now my eye sees you as God has just spoken all these words to him. God speaks and Job sees. Now, the beginning of both of these speeches, it says God speaks out of the whirlwind. So, you know, I think we're right to see that there's probably a visual aspect to it. But as God reveals himself in all of that, Job sees more clearly, even through God's speaking. And as Job sees God, he backs away. It's almost as if he steps down from the throne that he's been climbing up, right? Wanting to bring about the cosmic justice, questioning God's justice and power. He gets down and he kneels. He kneels before God in repentance. And he says, all is yours. I see you and I repent. I turn back. We met Job at the beginning of this again as the righteous one. Throughout this book, we've seen that his suffering didn't come about because of his righteousness or because of his wickedness. It actually came about because of his righteousness. That's how God put him forward. He wasn't unrighteous. But throughout the book, there's, there's different places, as, and we see this as in God's response to him, where Job kind of, you know, he trods out of place. He steps out of his lane a little bit. And here he's, he's stepping back in his lane the creature's lane, the servant's lane, and saying, God, all is yours. I see you, I hear you, and I repent. And so for you today, perhaps there's been times when you've trodden out of place, when you've stepped out of your lane in the midst of questions and darkness and suffering and intense personal things or weighty global things, or you've gotten out of your lane and, and perhaps some of these questions and wrestlings you can relate to. But as you see God in Job 40 to 41, as you hear his words here, as you look to Jesus who exhibits God's power, who brings about God's justice, who brings about God's rescue, Jesus who conquered Satan through suffering, right? A God who actually came and put on suffering do you step back in repentance where you need? Do you acknowledge his power and trust? Do you humbly bow before your almighty father? I think that's what he invites us to do here. So as you wade through darkness, as you wade through the why, let me encourage you 
that more than the why, you need the who. You need this God who is absolutely powerful, who is absolutely just, who absolutely knows all, and you need to rest in him. Let me close by reading the final verse from a song we sang last week. I was thinking of this as we sang this last week, In Christ Alone. Just hear this, and then we'll pray. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Father, we acknowledge along with Job, as you've shown us in your word, that yours is the power, yours is the knowledge, yours is the plan. But Father, we also admit that that is hard. And it's especially hard as we walk through difficult things. So God, we ask that you would give us strength, that you would give us humility, that you would give us receptive hearts, that we would be comforted by you. And God, that you would speak this, your word, to us in the places where we need it. We thank you, Father, that you sent your son, Jesus, that he suffered, and that he is our king. We pray all this through him. Amen.